Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, glad to have all of you with us uh, today. Um, let's get right to the panel because, once again, we have an awful lot to talk about, including the fact that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has uh, just released early this morning a new poll of state races that uh, we're going to dig into in some depth uh, as we move forward today. So we'll start with that. But let me first introduce Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who is my partner from the AJC on Tuesday shows. Tamar, great to have a poll from the AJC to be able to talk about today. Hey, Bill. Happy Tuesday. Can't wait to dive in. Yeah, it's going to be a fun show, I think. Amy Staggerwalt is uh, back with us today. She, of course, is a professor of political science and the associate chair of the Department of Political Science at uh, Georgia State University. She is also a big fan and season ticket holder to the Atlanta United matches. Um, how's The team's doing fairly well so far, Amy. Not great. They are. There's a couple of growing pains as we've had new players come in. Other ones, uh, the loss of Brad Guzan is ginormous, and I hope that he, of course, uh, recovers quickly, but um, that's going to be something we're going to have to work through. And I kind of need my child's baseball games to not be scheduled anymore during the Atlanta United games. <laughs> Personally, I am really watching closely Liverpool and Manchester City fighting it out oh, for the championship yeah. of the Premier League as we get down exactly. to the final days of uh, the season in uh, England. Well, thank you for being here, uh, as always, uh, Amy. Tammy Greer is back with us today as well, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. And uh, Tammy, you were saying before the show, you are getting ready for the semester to be over in the next few days. That's right. It's almost over. So grades will be in soon. And I, I hope you, we have a great summer, too. Um, you're gonna be, you told me that you're going to be working on, on your, your new book this summer as well, right? I am. I am. I'm working on a manuscript, um, and it's uh, about how we can move from protesting to policy and have sustainable uh, which policy. Is, mm-hmm. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but that, of course, is a real focus of a lot of the work you do, which is one of the reasons we always enjoy having you <clears throat> excuse me, on Political Rewind. And we're glad to welcome back to the show Claire Sanders, who is Senior Lecturer of Political Science and Public Administration at Georgia College. Claire, it's great to see you. How are things going down uh, in uh, your neck of the woods, Milledgeville, Eatonton, um, down there where uh, you are coming to us from today? Um, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. Um, everything's good in Milledgeville, but just like um, Tammy said, I'm in a sea of papers and, and exams and just full grading <laughs> mode right now. So our semester is winding down. Okay. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Tamara, let's start looking at the poll. Um, 
and of course, the top of the poll is Brian Kemp versus David Perdue. The AJC, which works with the University of Georgia, that they do the polling for your uh, organization these days, uh, has Brian Kemp well poised to win without a runoff. Fifty-three percent of the eight uh, hundred plus likely Republican voters said they favor him; they'll vote for him. Compared to only twenty-seven percent for David Perdue. Um, so it, at least the AJC poll, like uh, Quinnipiac, showed uh, the same thing, that Kemp might win this without a runoff. Absolutely huge news for the governor, who I know is very eager to shift his focus to Stacey Abrams. Obviously, she's been able to sit back these last couple months, pretty much fundraise and let Kemp and, and Purdue battle it out and kind of do the work for her. Um, so obviously that would be huge for Governor Kemp if he'd be able to avoid a, a two-month or, I'm sorry, a month-long runoff. They, they've shortened it uh, ever since SB202. But, I mean, a word of caution here, 15% of voters who were polled were undecided, uh, which is plenty to... Uh, keep uh, Governor Kemp under 50 percent, which would mean an overtime battle with David Perdue, which he does not want. He knows how unpredictable runoffs are in Georgia. That's how he became governor. Casey Cagle was the overwhelming favorite in 2018 uh, for the Republican nomination, or so we thought. And so the last thing he wants is to be dragged into an overtime battle, especially with Donald Trump uh, really kind of pulling for his defeat. What's so interesting about these numbers, and I'm sure we'll, we'll want to dive into this more, Bill, is is that is, is the fact that maybe a Trump is, endorsement isn't what we thought it was even a year ago. Trump has put so much political capital into David Perdue and up and down the ballot with his entire slate of candidates. And these numbers are showing that it doesn't seem to be making a massive difference right now. Um, yeah, 36 percent in, in, in your poll said that it doesn't matter to them one way or the other who Trump uh, endorses. But Tammy, there's another reason to be a little cautious about uh, this poll. Um, and that's the fact that the uh, University of Georgia was in the field before the, the, the series of debates began between uh, Purdue and Kemp. We know that they had a raucous debate Sunday night at WSB TV in Atlanta. We talked about it extensively on the show yesterday. They've got another one Thursday in Savannah, WTOC. And then next Sunday night, they'll have a debate on uh, GPB TV. That one actually, though, produced by the Atlanta Pre uh, the Press Club. Uh, we just carry it on their behalf. So Purdue potentially can make up ground in these debates if things go well for him. He could make up ground in, in the debates, yet it appeared as though, um, you know, the way that current Governor Kemp is characterizing the way that Purdue, um, he, you know, is criticizing all the work that he has done. Um, it's from a seat of, well, you haven't been here to to judge what this is. And if you were, then what would that look like? And then, of course, it goes to um a, a Trump conservative talking point, which really doesn't add any value or substance to whatever it is. And, you know, to, to, to connect that with having um, a third of those that responded in essence saying, well, it doesn't matter who Trump is endorsing, you know, that actually adds value to uh, Brian Kemp. So it's interesting. It would be interesting to me to see if Purdue does start to pivot toward actual policy and not just repeating talking points um, if he wants to make up ground um, before the primary. Amy? 
Timmy is exactly right. The other side of it is the reality is that very few people are actually going to be watching these debates or probably paying that much attention. Debates in general don't do a lot to really sort of change the minds of voters, right? So it might have a small impact on somebody who is sort of truly undecided and is trying to make a decision. And so as I know you all probably get sick of political scientists saying constantly, it comes down to turnout, right? <laughs> Who is able to actually get their voters to show up at the ballot box? And the important part is now that we've had sort of the changes from SB202, et cetera, is we don't know what's going to happen here. The time to be able to request an absentee ballot is greatly shortened. Your ability to return it has also been changed. Uh, you have less time to put it in the mail. Uh, you have to, if you're going to take it to a drop box, there now, uh, there's less of them, and they're inside polling places. And so when the polling place shuts down for that day, then that's, uh, you're not able to drop it in, for example, overnight. Uh, and early voting has been shortened as well, and then we have the voting day. And so it's a much more compressed schedule. And partly what's going to also have to be is who's going to be able to turn uh, their voters out and get them there. Um, here, right, and then once they get into the ballot box, right, again, incumbents have the advantage, and again, right, people can point to what it is the governor has done for them. So let's be explicit. Uh, I think almost all of us on this, many, many of us who are listening right now, uh, received a, or will be receiving very soon, a $5,000 cost of living adjustment, right, one of the very few raises that state employees have gotten in a very long time. Right. The teachers got their bonus and are supposed to be getting um, a raise next year. That has real world implications for people that former Senator Purdue does not have the ability to point to in the same way that the governor does. Well, and, and Claire, uh, add to that uh, the fact that, as we've discussed on this show before, Kemp has this entire run up to the uh, primary election itself, May 24th, uh, to be out there signing bills, showcasing the agenda that he helped pass that is very, very uh, favorable for him with conservative voters. In fact, we'll talk about this a little more in a minute. He'll be down in Bonaire, sunny Perdu uh, David Perdue's hometown today, uh, signing a tax bill. So, so it gives Kemp enormous advantages. And, Claire, one more thing, and then I'd love your... Uh, thoughts about this. In this poll, 71% of the Republicans' likely voters uh, say that uh, Kemp is doing a good job. That is a pretty staggering number for a David Perdue to try to fight against. Right. I, I agree, Bill. Um, the Purdue campaign, I know when they're seeing this, this poll, they're thinking, um, like Tammy was saying, that it might be time to pivot from those um, sort of Trump messages and um, go the way of substantive policy debates. I mean, when you have an incumbent governor, incumbency, I know, like we were saying, political scientists talk a lot about the power of incumbency, but governors like presidents enjoy a bully pulpit. And um, Governor Kemp can, can take this time to say, here's what I'm doing for Georgia. We're not talking about, you know, the past. We're not talking, we're not relitigating the election. Um, this is what I've done. Um, and so I think that bodes well for the for the Kemp campaign. There is an eternity left, though. I mean, a day in politics is an eternity. However, I think that this poll is indicative of um, the Kemp campaign's strength going into the last days of the primary. You know, Amy, I do think it's fortunate for Kemp that he has these uh, bill signings to showcase his agenda 
Uh, because certainly in that WSB TV debate the other night, um, I made my point about this yesterday. Um, he played right into David Perdue's hands. He spent the first half hour of that debate uh, allowing David Perdue to uh, uh, pummel him over the fact that he didn't somehow change the results of the Georgia election, which he had no power to do. And rather than turn the corner on that in the debate, uh, Kemp realizes he has to appeal to those same conservative voters who may believe the election was fraudulent. And, and so he spent the first half hour seemingly on the defensive, and it was not a particularly good look for Brian Kemp. These events, like today, give him a chance to showcase the agenda. That's an excellent point, and it really sort of shows the power of the incumbency and especially of um, a gubernatorial incumbent who has right the authority that they have. It's much greater, for example, than a president as the executive, like sort of the chief of the state, uh, to be able to do this. He has that power. Um, he, in fact, is going to go do one of the bill signings with a quote-unquote special announcement, uh, along with our new chancellor, who is also David Perdue's <laughs> first cousin. Um, and so he's able to sort of utilize that, utilize the bully pulpit in a way that Senator Perdue simply is not able to. And, right, even though clearly he's campaigning, he is not doing this as a campaign stop, right? He is doing it as his powers of governor, and he would be doing signings like this around the state with different things, but it gives it an added boost when you get to do it also during the election season. Tammy, one last comment on the governor's uh, 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 polling numbers, and then we'll move on to another poll. poll. Yeah, I think it's um, an, an interesting uh, situation that the governor continues to be in to to be forward-thinking or forward-looking to um, run on his policies at the same time that lingering, you know, um, lie about the presidential election um, that that continues to linger behind him, even though he, the governor Kemp had some interesting pot shots at um, former Senator Perdue about losing the election and, you know, people who lost can't talk and whatnot. Um, it's still there, and it's still there for people who are allies of the former president and allies of um, of the former senator, Purdue. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to skip down a couple of places in the uh, uh, order of, uh, of voting uh, of the ballot. I want to talk about the Brad Ravensburg, uh, Jody Heiss uh, race. Ravensburger, of course, uh, defending his incumbency against Jody Heiss, a, perp- a perpetrator of the big lie, really uh, believes that the election was fraudulent or claims to believe it was fraudulent. And I, frankly, was surprised that Raffensberger, who's been under fire for a very long time now by Donald Trump and other Republicans in Georgia, is uh, basically uh, within the margin of error of Jody Heiss. They're, they're basically tied, Raffensberger holding his own. I guess... I thought that Raffensperger would be really severely wounded uh, by not supporting uh, the Trump fraud claims. I mean, he still is, right? This is the incumbent. This is somebody who should be cruising to re-election in a position that until 2020 was pretty much below everyone's radar. So the fact that he is barely holding on against uh, a challenger is, is surprising in its way. But you're totally right. He, you know, Brad Raffensperger are very much angered conservatives by not 
you know, trying to overturn the election results. Um, he obviously has angered liberals by going after Stacey Abrams. So some people would say, who is Brad Raffensperger's constituency? So the fact that he is neck and neck with Jody Heiss is, is noteworthy in its way, too. This is 100 percent a battle that's going to play out in a in a runoff because there are two other Republican candidates. So this, uh, you know, we're going to see how um, how much things will change in, in May and June for them, especially some of these revelations about uh, Jody Heiss texting with Mark Meadows on the on January 6th and his his relationship with uh, with, you know, some of these insurrectionists and, and kind of the role he might have played in all of this. Um, so that'll be an interesting one to watch. Claire, I, I think maybe that one of the things I wasn't taking into account in terms of Raffensperger is everybody knows him in the state of Georgia. He is a very well-known statewide uh, public official, whereas Jody Heiss is still, you know, he's well-known in his congressional district, but he doesn't have vast statewide name recognition. And so that in itself uh, could be uh, important. And we learned in another University of Georgia poll that um, when people were told that Heiss had Trump's endorsement, it did bump up his, his, his poll numbers. Uh, but I still think he's probably just not that well known across the state. I think you're right. Um, and in terms of Raffensperger, he's probably one of the most well-known secretaries of state um, in the country because of all because of 2020. Um, but I, I'm really interested in the dynamics, the different dynamics between the gubernatorial race and also the secretary of state um, race, because it seems like Trump's endorsement and Trump's influence is is greater here because the Secretary of State's office is more connected to the actual administration of elections. So um, that might um, be a good sign for Heist that, you know, this is um, these messages that we're conveying about the how the administration of elections cost um, Republicans their um, a victory. Um, he may be thinking that's an effective way to, to keep going. But on the other hand, if the elections go well, this is in a runoff, Raffensperger. I mean, if we see that the elections go smoothly, then Georgians may move on from this. You know, Republicans may move on from the whole, um, the issues that were um, emphasized in the 2020 election by Trump. Tomorrow, jump back in. Yeah, I wanted to clarify some comments I just made about Jody Heiss. I mentioned he was the one texting Mark Meadows. That was actually Marjorie Taylor Greene. There was a giant dump of people's texts that uh, CNN reported yesterday. <laughs> Heiss wasn't texting uh, Mark Meadows. He was in a meeting with uh, a bunch of Republican members of the Freedom Caucus at the White House urging the overturning of the election results for Pence to not count the, uh, you know, Georgia's uh, electors and instead to go for the alternative Republicans. So just wanted to clarify that. I'm sorry about the error. Yeah, no, th th no, thank you for uh, doing that. I appreciate that. Um, uh, Amy, jump in. Uh, I do think one of the things, right, that Raffensperger is that we've sort of seen that might explain a little bit of his jump in the poll from the one that was done a bit earlier um, back in March is that he's now able to campaign. Uh, he's now able to fundraise, he's able to campaign, he's able to directly answer uh, sort of the claims being made by Representative Heiss now that the legislative session has ended. Um, and I think it's also, you know, kind of an interesting question, again, right, this is somewhat of a turnout issue, right, similarly to your exact poll sample, right? One of the things that we see sort of in this poll is that um, 
Rod Raffensperg favorables were much higher than they were in some of the earlier ones. Um, and the other part, which might be sort of interesting, is that even though a lot of people in this particular poll said that um, they do find right, the issue of election security incredibly important, uh, the numbers there were overwhelming for sort of extremely and very important, they also were quite confident that these elections will be conducted fairly and accurately. And of course, Brad Raffensperger is in charge of making sure they are conducted fairly and accurately. He's been the one pushing the new provisions on uh, ensuring that only citizens can vote. That is, in fact, already part of Georgia law, but they've reinforced it uh, or reiterated it, perhaps. But within this, right, he's able to sort of point to the actions that he's taken and, again, to say, look, all of these claims of fraud, none of them have borne um, and so that's the other reason why it might be really interesting that there is a subpoena that was recently granted to uh, get information from a group that is bringing claims of voter fraud. The subpoenas are towards that group to say, all right, produce your evidence, which could also be really interesting, right, that he's the timing of that, because it could also, again, sort of further this thing of like, look, this isn't true. And so we need to be able to discuss reality and discuss right what was done correctly. <laughs> Just to explain that a little bit more, uh, True the Vote, which is an organization out of Texas, a conservative organization that's been trying to prove voter fraud in states around the country, that uh, they believe Trump really won fraudulent, uh, despite the fact there's no evidence of fraud. Um, they have claimed that there was ballot harvesting in Georgia. Raffensperger very wisely, as a guy running for re-election, is glad to say, all right, show us your evidence. We're more than happy uh, to investigate uh, this. Tammy, if I could, I'd like to move on to a couple other uh, items in the poll. We'll, we'll just mention that in the lieutenant governor's race, uh, Burt Jones, who is the Trump-endorsed candidate, has a significant lead right now uh, in uh, that race over Butch Miller. Both of them in the state, have been in the state Senate for quite a while, although there's so many people undecided there. Who knows where that's headed? But here's what I'd like to turn to, if I uh, may. 94% of the Republicans polled say they think the United States is headed in the wrong direction. Now, this is a Republican poll, so that in many ways isn't surprising. But it's a very bad sign in terms of where this state stands right now in, as we look at the midterm elections and just how unfavorably uh, Republicans feel about uh, Joe Biden. Again, not surprising, but the right track, wrong track numbers, when you put Democrats into polling as well, aren't, aren't very good. They're not that bad. I've always found this question to be the most interesting question uh, when these polls are taken because the follow-up political scientist in me wants to know why. What specifically is it um, that is creating this wrong direction type of a thought process for um, for those that are participating in this poll. Um, and because we don't know the why, it's very challenging for us or for us as political scientists or even for those that are in elected positions to actually give a response to, you know, whatever it is. So um, to just accept the the 94 percent. OK, it's just why. Um, and yes, uh, because of the way that 
um, we tend to polarize language when it comes to political parties. Um, this flip-flop, depending on who is um, at the top of the ticket, will always go to, to that particular space. I've also found it interesting in the poll um, is, is, you know, when asked about how is Georgia doing, that you had, you know, 48% said that it, of the Republicans polled in this poll said that it was uh, 48% going in the right direction, which is also very interesting to me because it's not even a majority when you have a Republic, mm -hmm. Republicans um, in all constitutional offices within the state. So I'm not sure if it's um, authentic or if it's a feeling based on rhetoric that folks are being ingested with um, from all sides of, of media. Oh, I, I love that observation. And I mm -hmm. think that makes a great deal of sense. And uh, I think Amy uh, and Claire, you probably uh, uh, think that very similarly about that. Uh, tomorrow, one last item in this poll before we take a break and move on. Um, uh, Trump is still incredibly popular, according to your polling. 77% uh, have a favorable view of the former president. 55% of the Republicans say they want him to run for another uh, term in 2024. 35% say he should not uh, run. I'm not quite sure what uh, to make of that 35%. And it's sort of like what Tammy said. We don't really have data that gives us more information on why that 35% doesn't want him to run. Yeah, one thing that was interesting to me as we read how important it was that Donald Trump endorse specific candidates to these Republican primary voters. And while some something like about 45% said that it made a difference to them, it made them somewhat or much more likely to vote for something, for somebody, 55% um, said it either made no difference or it, you know, it made them less inclined to vote for something. Um, as I mentioned, Donald Trump has put a lot of political capital into his slate of candidates here in Georgia. And I think, you know, it's, it's very much kind of looking, maybe it'll inform how, what he decides in 2024, whether he wants to run again. Um, and so that was most interesting to me too. All right. Um, it, interesting numbers in this poll tomorrow. We're really glad the AJC uh, uh, published a, a, a poll today, and we'll probably be talking about it uh, off and on in the days ahead as well. In the meantime, why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman, Georgia State University political science professor Amy Steigerwald, Clark Atlanta University political science professor Tammy Greer, and uh, Claire Sanders of Georgia College all join us for today's political uh, rewind. Uh, just a t quick follow-up to a, a, a discussion we had for quite a while on the show yesterday. Uh, Tamar, of course, about Marjorie Taylor Greene, as you pointed out, uh, she uh, is now been implicated in this plot hatched by apparently Mark Meadows to try to decertify uh, presidential votes for Joe Biden in a number of states. Jody Heiss was part of that as well. And, and very just briefly, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, was testifying on Friday or not testifying, I think is a, a fairer way to describe what she was doing uh, about whether she should be uh, uh, kicked off the, the ballot. Uh, uh, because of her behavior around the insurrection. But you pointed out before the show, here she was yesterday down on the border with Kevin McCarthy, 
who hopes he'll be the Speaker of the House if Republicans, as expected, do take retake control of the House. Um, and he, she's standing directly behind him, and he seems perfectly happy that she's there. That's pretty interesting in and of itself. And I ask you about it because you covered McCarthy when you were on the Hill for some time. Yeah, and he was, of course, under pressure after a lot of these past remarks that Marjorie Taylor Greene made came to light. You know, are you going to punish her? Are you going to rebuke her? Of course, Democrats voted to strip her of her committee assignments. Um, Kevin McCarthy has kind of kept his distance or said, I'm going to meet with her privately. We're going to deal with this internally. I don't think he gave you know, at least progressives, the public admonishment that they were really hoping that that he would uh, give to, to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now he very much needs her support, um, or at least the support of members like her, if he wants to become Speaker of the House, which of course is a dream he's had for a long time. Um, he was the favorite uh, when I was covering the House back in 2015 to succeed, or to succeed John Boehner when he stepped down. He ended up pulling out in a really stunning development, like hours before the vote, when it became clear that he wasn't going to have the support of enough members from the the House Freedom Caucus and and other conservatives. So he very much needs to appeal to them. Uh, so it was very noteworthy that he chose to go down to the border with her yesterday. And, um, you know, clearly the, this revelation that he had said in the aftermath of January 6th, that he was going to push for, for Donald Trump to step down. Everyone is waiting to see if there's going to be fallout from that with Trump, with Freedom Caucusers. So far, that hasn't come yet. I think we're still waiting for re act from Donald Trump. Uh, but right now, it seems like he still has friends uh, in the Freedom Caucus and with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, we're going to watch how that unfolds. I, I just want to take a quick moment uh, to um, mention that. Claire, I'd really like to turn uh, and bring the whole panel in on this discussion, because it really mm -hmm. comes out of the polling story that we just talked about. Um, you've started an interesting program uh, at Georgia College, a program that will lead to people being certified uh, in for positions working in elections around the state. Tell us a little bit more about that, uh, because it strikes me that SB uh, uh, 202 is as much about the process of how elections unfold as it is about voting itself. Sure, absolutely. So as we all know, we give more attention to the horse race of politics and the campaign aspects in politics than we do in regards to the actual administration of elections. So we've been teaching a course at Georgia College um, for the past few years about election administration, election law, election administration. My professional experience is in local election administration. I worked for a probate judge um, for about six years and um, worked with Georgia elections. So when I started teaching at Georgia College, I taught um, I've been teaching classes on election administration. So um, we have two certificates um, that will begin in the fall. You don't become a certified poll worker. That can only be done through your county training program. But we will offer a certificate in election administration at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level. Um, at the undergraduate level, we want to encourage students to be a part of the process. And um, they will actually be required to intern, meaning they have to work in elections. So um, and at the graduate level, we're focusing on uh, the practitioners, people who are in election administration or want to um, seek careers in election administration. So we're really excited because I was just at the Georgia Election Officials Conference back about a month ago, 
And I was talking to some of my um, my call my friends in election administration. And how did you get started? How did you get started in elections? And a lot of them said by accident. So with all of the the doubt and controversy that campaigns are creating regarding election administration, um, we're hoping to sort of carve it out in terms of a career path and to encourage public service in elections. Um, Amy, all of this becomes important because this is going to be early voting starts uh, next week uh, before the May 24th primary. This will be the first full statewide election run under the new law, SB 202. Um, and it, as you've already mentioned it, uh, in, in earlier in the show, some of the concerns that you think people are going to have as they try to navigate uh, voting uh, in this election. Yes, programs like the one that Claire is talking about are incredibly important, and so I'm thrilled to hear that there is something mm. like this because administering elections is not easy, right? Not, right? So not only is it that it's a complicated process with multiple ways that people can do it, there's also the fact that for most people, Voting is simply not a habit. Voting is not simply they spend a lot of time thinking about or preparing for. So, And we constantly have influxes of new voters. And then add on top of that, changing of what the election rules are and having to say to people, I recognize that you've done it this way for 30 years. You don't get to do it that way any longer. Um, and having to walk people through that takes a lot of work. And the other thing that we've seen, especially that came out of a lot of the um, vitriol that was directed at election workers after the 2020 elections are it's very difficult to recruit people to want to work at the elections and work at the polls, even though this is one of the most important things that we do as a democratic government, right? We have to have elections, but we also need to convince people that, yes, they should give up their days to help the rest of us vote. Tammy, it, it strikes me that as we try to navigate the new uh, uh, law that I, I've always thought, and, and I think you'll agree with this, we talk often about voting being a right that we have in this country. I think that's wrong. Voting is a responsibility that we have as participants in a democratic republic. Absolutely, Dale. <laughs> voting <laughs> is, is, is the tenet of full citizenship. <clears throat> And I um, teach my students that voting is a privilege um, and it's a privilege because it can be taken away um, for whatever reasons um, that there are. Um, and the we as the citizens, as full citizens who have the ability to participate in electoral politics can hire and fire elected officials who are not working in our best interest. And once we understand that the power of that full citizenship, the power of the people um, to make such determinations, um, then perhaps we can move forward because sometimes it can appear as though, quote unquote, government is happening to us rather than us as a citizenry mm -hmm. having the ability to impact and to affect government to work on behalf of the masses. So if we could switch that mindset, um, that would be amazing. And, um, and take on this mantle and power and this cloak of full citizenship in order for us to move forward. Uh, Tamar, we know that when SB 202 is being debated, 
uh, Democrats uh, said that this is a matter. This is this law will amount to voter suppression in new ways. Whereas Republicans repeated the mantra, mantra over and over again: easier to vote, harder to cheat. Um, we don't know how that's going to play out, which is what's going to be fascinating about this election in May. Um, but we do know uh, that there are people like Alan Abramowitz, uh, who has said on this show, Democrats are going to turn out in bigger numbers than ever because they're angry about this uh, new law. We'll see how that plays out tomorrow. Exactly. And the primaries are going to be different, right? Um, you're seeing a lot sure. more competitive primaries, of course, on the Republican side and in some of these marquee races. So we might see higher turnout um, just because there are these these giant contests. And it does tend to be the party faithful who tends to come out um, for these races. But November is going to be the race to watch. And as you mentioned earlier, we haven't seen the full impacts of SB202. We had some local elections in Atlanta and elsewhere around the state, but we haven't seen it on the massive scale carried out. And that's why we're going to be closely watching these May 24th primaries. Um, Claire, to uh, uh, just talk about the importance of election workers to before we move on to another subject, I thought it was uh, really meaningful that uh, the Kennedy Library has awarded one of its John F. Kennedy Profiles in Courage Awards uh, to Wandrea Shea Moss. She was an election worker in Fulton County who Donald Trump singled out by name and accused her and her mother of essentially uh, uh, counting ballots from a suitcase that was that was they were fraudulent ballots. <clears throat> Excuse me. She received death threats. She had to go into hiding. It turned out, of course, that this was a lie, that she had done nothing wrong at all. Um, and now she's going to get a Kennedy a uh, uh, library f uh, 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 award, a Kennedy Profile and Courage Award. And, and I just think it really emphasized, they were really smart to do this as we approach the 2022 election to point out how important the integrity of election workers really is. <clears throat> Absolutely. Election workers are the gatekeepers of our representative democracy. Um, a lot of people don't really think about how elections are actually conducted and going back to Tammy's point about voting rights, um, the way our elections are conducted, the, the way pe the people view election results is just as important as elections themselves. And so when um, we're talking about poll workers, um, the, they're the frontline administrators of elections. They're volunteers. They, for the most part, um, elections are a different type of bureaucracy in that their election workers are facilitating a democracy, but they do it seasonally, right? So we depend on an army of volunteers that are trained and, and um, go through um, a process to facilitate voting rights. So um, I think the campaign um, bear some responsibility for in terms of their rhetoric um, and and not casting, you know, making accusations <laughs> regarding poll workers who are doing their job because public information levels are quite low regarding how elections actually work. So if you see ballots in a box or you see different procedures taking place without the context of the Georgia election code, it's very difficult to really know what's going on. So that's why education is so important. That's why 
it's important to be a part of the process. I can promise you if you serve as a poll worker, your view of elections and, and political parties change because you realize it's a nonpartisan um, activity. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Let's get to our final break of the show. Back with more in just a moment. Tomorrow's Political Rewind Newsletter Day. If you're not a subscriber, we'd love to have you join us. It'll come to your inbox every Wednesday. I'm going to start working on tomorrow's newsletter right after this show ends today. Just go to gpb.org newsletters, and uh, you can sign up right there. Um, quick note, uh, Tamar. Uh, actually, Amy uh, referred to it. I think it was Amy a little while ago. Uh, go back to the governor's race for just a moment. <laughs> Brian Kemp goes to Bonaire today, where uh, is which is David Perdue's hometown. He'll be signing his big tax bill there. It is the uh, he'll be there with Sonny Perdue, David's cousin. <laughs> and all I can say is, ouch to, for David Perdue. <laughs> Going to his favorite restaurant in his hometown yeah. <laughs> to, I mean, really just sticking a finger in his eye. Where David Perdue, the restaurant, is where David Perdue's first campaign commercial of this uh, cycle was uh, uh, filmed. Uh, Tamar, I, I, we'd love to be a fly on the wall listening to the way Sonny and David talked about what's happening down there today. <laughs> exactly. What a, you know, <laughs> politics can be so funny sometimes, and I would love that too. We'll talk about that on tomorrow's show, uh, uh, see how that unfolds. All right, tomorrow, let's move on to a, another subject. As we know, uh, a judge in New York uh, has now uh, uh, said that Donald Trump is in contempt for not uh, responding to a subpoena to turn over documents related to the state attorney general's investigation of his business practices, possible criminal uh, behavior there. Um it's a, he's, the judge has uh, uh, hit Trump with a $10,000 a day fine for every day that he does not turn over the required documents. The, the, it's not a done deal yet. Uh, the Trump lawyers can go back into court and try to change this ruling. But, but what I'm interested in is you've been really on top of Fonnie Willis lately. The Fulton County District Attorney did a great interview with her about the special grand jury uh, that she's impaneled that will look at whether Trump committed any criminal behavior in trying to overturn George's election. Um, and then you also did a piece the other day about how Donald Trump is going to be able to fight against Fonnie Willis. So what is the New York judge do in terms of your thinking about how Trump may behave in dealing with Fonnie Willis here in Georgia? I mean, Trump has shown that he's willing to do everything in his power legally to try and stymie, fight, delay, halt things. You know, even a subpoena is not going to intimidate him. So it shows that he may try and stonewall anything that D.A. Willis and this special purpose grand jury may send his way. He could try and block documents from being transferred over, citing things like executive privilege, something he's used widely in with the January 6th committee, prosecutors in New York City. Um, he could try and block the testimony of attorneys and other White House aides, um, citing presidential, you know, presidential immunity, attorney-client privilege, all sorts of things. And I expect him to fight every step of the way 
uh, using whatever kind of legal levers are available to him. Of course, this New York Attorney General inquiry, it's, it's a civil um, investigation. It's not criminal. She can't bring criminal charges against him. Um, but very interesting kind of window into how the president or the former president approaches prosecutors and inquiries like this. Um, th- thank you for reminding me that it's civil, not criminal, because I think I misspoke when I when I called it a criminal investigation. Um, Amy, obviously, there's no connection between what happens in a New York court and what happens here in a Fulton County special grand jury. Uh, nevertheless, it it does put the investigation here in a different context. And the question is um, whether or not uh, Trump will feel as unconstrained about uh, how he deals with Fonnie Willis here. Um, I'm sure that he sees it as part and parcel uh, of the same types of attacks that are being brought and will fight it in similar ways, right? He's going very clearly to try, right, as Tamar accurately lays out in her article, to stop the proceedings in various ways, right? And part of what is going to happen here is that uh, there's a couple of tacks to take, and one of the ones, right, is to uh, say that executive privilege covers uh, the people that they want to subpoena, that they're not able to talk about it. And even if, right, it turns out that those rule that um, there are then hearings about that, and finally it's found that that doesn't apply, which is what we've seen happen in a lot of these other cases, what it does is it delays, right? It causes, it's a, it's a ability to run out the case, to basically run out the time to have it be that it is easier for the opposition to say, we're so far removed from this. Why are we focusing our time on this, right? Why is this what the DA is focused on when they could be doing other things? And so what um, the DA is going to have to do is really sort of figure out on some level of how to um, somewhat preempt or prepare for these types of arguments so that they can be expeditiously handled and, right, if she's going to move forward, that they're able to without it being dragged out. Because time, time is the way that most defendants are able to stave off claims and things like this. Uh, Tamar? And of course, D.A. Willis herself is up for re-election in 2024. It's very possible that Trump yeah. may choose to run again in 2024. So some could argue that it's in his benefit to drag this out as long as possible and to say, well, you're getting really close to an election now. You're going after somebody running for president. Um, that kind of goes against the way that many people in the legal system kind of like to do things. So that's that's something to watch out for, for sure. I would argue, though, that the the Fulton County case carries a lot more risk for Trump compared to this New York attorney general, this civil mm-hmm. probe. Um, I'm not saying this is likely, but some of these potential, you know, charges that, that have been floating around, including racketeering, if D.A. Willis is able to prove it and she can convince a jury to, to go there, that could be that could mean five to 20 years in jail. Um, I am not saying that is likely. I think that is highly unlikely to put a president, a former president in jail. But there is a much higher risk rather than just fines and civil penalties. OK, um, thank you uh, for for uh, talking with us about that, all of you. Let me go on to one last item. We don't have a lot of time for it, but uh, the Supreme Court, Tammy, heard a big case, another big case yesterday. This has been quite a consequential uh, year for the Supreme Court. 
they took on the case of a football coach in uh, the Bremerton School District in the state of Washington who was praying at, at the end of football games on the field. He started by praying himself, just getting down on a knee. He was sort of converted to religion later in his life, and he felt very strongly that he ought to thank God for whatever transpired in the game. It started as a private moment, uh, but it quickly turned into students and parents and others joining him on the field. Uh, the school district told him to stop it. They did not renew his contract. He was at the Supreme Court yesterday on a big First Amendment case dealing with separation of church and state. And apparently, according to SCOTUS blog and other reporting, uh, the justices seem to be somewhat sympathetic to his argument that he should be allowed to pray. Uh, Tammy George's state that's dealt with this over and over again in some very significant ways. Right. Um, and so um, this has been um, very interesting because um, the if we go to polarization, one would argue that um, more quote unquote liberal people or secular people uh, want to take prayer away, right? Versus having a separation at, as as what is um, that we know that there is a separation between church and state, and that the the state, the big state um, or small state s um, is not. To create a religion or to force individuals to do such a such a thing, um, and and that that and with to respect that there are different types of religions and different types of way that people pray, right? Um, I I find this very interesting because the coach did not force anyone to do such and 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 to make that like you had to do. It was an impromptu. Let's all join in together. Um, so I, I'm curious as to the conversation between the district and the coach prior to the termination um, to, to see how that all panned out in the end. Um, Claire, this could be a very significant ruling. We'll expect it uh, sometime later in June. Yes? Uh, yes. So we do expect it to um, to be issued early summer, and it'll be interesting because, you know, going back to Engle 1962, um, the the direction of the court has been a clear one um, in regards to the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. I mean, we have the endorsement test, the coercion test, um, but this one is a little bit more complex in terms of um, freedom of speech versus the Establishment Clause and your right as an individual. Yes. Amy, let me give you one last word before we have to go on this. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about this case is there's a dispute over the central facts of what exactly happened, of what exactly the coach was doing as to how much he was asking others. Um, and also there is some evidence that some of the students felt that if they didn't participate, it might harm their playing time. And so that's also in dispute. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of room for the court to rule on this in such a way that it doesn't really um, upset the entire balance of separation of church and state. We'll watch how it unfolds. All right, we're completely out of time. Claire Sanders, Amy Steigerwald, Tammy Greer, Tamar Hallerman, thank you for a terrific conversation uh, today. I have just enough time. Uh, to thank uh, Sam Burmistaws, Natalie Mendenhall, and uh, uh, Jesse Neiswanger for their work on Political Rewind, and to say we'll be back again with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>